Thanks. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Um, if anything I say is useful, then wonderful. And if it's not, I wouldn't worry about it. I'm going to have to recap slightly on the earlier concepts for those of you who weren't here for other sessions and maybe for people on tapes who are listening. So, um, in the first concept, what it's really saying is that there is a worldwide consciousness and that's in charge of AA. And there's a curious parallel here um, in the, between the concepts and the big book. On page 64, it says that when the spiritual malady is cleared up, we straighten out mentally and then physically. So those are the three levels. You start with the spirit and then you go to the mind and then you go to the body. Spirit, mind, body. And this all looks a little bit accidental until you see page 86. And when you're asking for God's will, what are the three things you ask for? Inspiration, uh, an intuitive thought or a decision. Again, it's those three levels, spirit, mind, body. And the service structure of Alcoholics Anonymous has those three levels. So the level of spirit is this universal consciousness of the whole fellowship. The level of mind is the conference and the level of the body is the service structure which serves conference. That's where the work actually takes place. And the thing about consciousness um, and spirit, it's all very well but it's like radio waves. Unless you have a receiver to receive the radio waves, then it doesn't do any good. You can't listen to the archers or the six o'clock news. You need a radio set to do it. So if you're going to listen to the consciousness of AA, you need a radio set. What's the radio set? It's conference. Um, now, conference can sit there and make all of its lovely decisions and recommendations. But that's of no use to man or beast unless there is a physical body to carry it out. And that's what the uh, that's what the service structure is below the conference. So the General Service Board and all of its corporations and all of its direct work, uh, all of its subcommittees. So you've got these three levels. And. The, con the third concept, it, the, the, the concepts are in the wrong order. I'm just going to say that they're in the wrong order. Why are they in the wrong order? They're in the wrong order because uh, in the first concept, Bill is saying that uh, the consciousness of the worldwide fellowship of AA, the spirit is in charge. And then it delegates the decision making authority on major questions of policy and finance to the conference and rather than going on to say and then conference delegates that uh, the practical implementation to the general service board and then the general service board delegates that to its um, subcommittees and to its corporations it says no 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 let's just take a, a detour and the detour lasts three concepts then we're back in the room at concept six so this little detour of concepts three, four and five, they're general principles which govern how delegation takes place, because it's not as straightforward. If ever you've had a dispute at your home group, you'll know it's not straightforward how responsibility and authority are delegated. Just as a reminder, responsibility and authority. Uh, the responsibility side of things is the knowledge of God's will for us and authority is the power to carry that out. So concept three is about delegation. Concept four is about participation. Concept five is about whining. I, so, sorry, I mean minority, minority opinion and, and grievance and so on, also known as whining. We're allowed to whine and we have a duty to whine but it's still whining. Okay, good. There we go. Just needed to say that. So we've got this detour. So mentally park the fact that Bill 
from concept six onwards is going to return to the topic of this cascade down the service structure of responsibility and authority. Um, now, the, every concept is there to address a problem. And if you want to understand a concept, it really helps to know what the problem is that the concept addresses. Now, let's say you've got a question for conference. Let's think of a, um, a good example. Is it OK for AA conferences to pay for speakers traveling expenses and accommodation? That will be that's a, a, an actual conference question that has been. So, uh, you know, you're sitting there in your group conscience in group conscience meeting discussing this in in, uh, oh, I don't know, Byron Bay. And you come up with one very strong view and then another bunch of people is sitting there in Blacksland and they're um, deciding themselves. Well, what, what do they want now? There is a vanishingly small chance that all of the group consciences around the country, they all happen to come up with exactly the same answer. In the same way that when you put together a bunch of different human beings and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Shall we have an open meeting? Shall we have a closed meeting? Are we going to close with the Lord's Prayer? Are we going to close with the Serenity Prayer? Are we going to close in silence, staring at each other? That's an option. Um, Everyone has a different view, and it's exactly the same with conference. So you imagine all of these delegates, these 110 delegates or so in Great Britain, turning up from the highlands and islands, from, from Wales, from Cornwall, from uh, Bethnal Green. If they don't have, if they, unless they happen to have exactly the same view, unless they're carrying the same views from their groups, what you've got is an impasse. So you've got a bunch of delegates who all think something different or all told to think something different by their groups. Well, that's the end of it. You just vote and then whoever's won is won. That's not what happens. In concept 12, uh, there is a process for how you go from the raw views that come into the process to the final recommendation. And this is a process of transformation. And it's described by the little trio, discussion, vote, and substantial unanimity. What substantial unanimity in practice, 50% uh, won't do will accept two thirds. We'd much rather have three quarters, but frankly, uh, ideally you're gonna get to, let's say it's 110, around 104. There are always gonna be six awkward buggers who think, you know, you, you, whatever you do, you're never gonna get them to change their view for whatever reason. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. So there's a natural, there's usually a natural cap on how much unanimity you can get. But the ideal really is to have everyone on board. You really don't want to push decisions through with a substantial disgruntled um, minority. A gruntled majority and a disgruntled minority is a very bad combination. So you've got to have a process basically for people changing their minds. This, what this means is that the delegates are not simply voting urns into which the group, uh, the groups have posted their little ballots, they're intelligent agents. And this reflects the idea in We Agnostics, I never remember the page, it's 40 some, I think it's 49, where intelligent agents spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. And then page 87 of the big book says something similar. We're given God gave us brains to use. Now, you can't say that everywhere or you'll be shot down in flames. Um, you'll be, be told to keep it simple, stupid. Uh, one of those kind little AA sayings we've got from, well, somewhere else. Let's not say where. Um, but the delegates get to think. 
Now, this is not them thinking on their own account. We've got to understand what the delegates are. When the delegates are sitting in your area or district or region meeting, they're your delegates. They belong to that region. As soon as they go to conference, everything changes. They're not representing you anymore. They are uh, representing, they are working on behalf of the whole fellowship. And their job as part of that is to report what the particular region they represent has said. But conference is a spiritual entity, just like a group conscience meeting is a spiritual entity. You're serving the group, not yourself. Conference is serving the whole fellowship. Not It's not fighting the corner of its own region, uh, of the individual regions. That's not what they're there for. So as soon as the delegates are there at conference, they're making a decision on behalf of the whole fellowship and therefore listening to the views from all of the other regions. What this means is there's extra information coming into the decision making process at, at conference level, which was not there at region level. If you're sitting in Bethnal Green, you don't know the impact of the question at issue on Blackburn or Plymouth or Landudno Wells. You have no you have no idea. It's only at conference that you hear you hear these other these other views. Let me just turn a page. Um, so the delegates they come armed with information from their own regions. But then they hear all of the information, all of the views, all of the experiences from the other regions. The General Service Board is part of conference. Uh, it's like the executive wing. It's only a small part of conference from a voting point of view, or at least should only be a small part of conference from a vote voting point of view. If the General Service Board members of conference have above a certain level, it, it becomes circular. They're making policy decisions regarding themselves, whereas it should be the whole fellowship which is making the large decisions of policy and finance anyway. Um, separate issue. Um, the General Service Board feed in information to conference. They're going to feed in practical aspects of implementation, the financial consequences of a decision, the legal aspects. So uh, the fellowship often has very little idea of what the legal responsibilities of the charity or the foundation or the nonprofit or whatever is running the offices. The fellowship have no clue, usually, what that involves. Uh, there are effects of decisions on other parts of the fellowship or on the structure. So the General Service Board has a responsibility to feed in all sorts of practical information. This means that your little group may well have come up with a very sort of heartfelt and well-intentioned view on a topic, but the group does not have all the facts. In fact, it only has a few of the facts. How many people in your group have served at all levels of the AA structure? Very few. They don't, so they don't have the personal experience. Also, conference usually takes place like a few weeks or a few months after the delegates are briefed by their groups or their regions, their areas, their districts. So the situation may have evolved. This means that the delegates are informed not just by their groups, but by other delegates, by the board, by other information introduced into conference. Sometimes there are expert reports which are produced. They're informed by their own conscience. I mean, that's an actual thing. Again, the delegates are not simply voting urns. They're, they have their own connection to the higher power, allegedly. Uh, and then you've got changes in circumstance. You've got evolution, which happens between the briefing and the actual decision making. This means delegates actually get to vote against how they were briefed by their groups. And so this is where this is where I'm going to read the long form. Um, Oh, it doesn't really it doesn't really explain very much. I'm going to read the short form of, of the concept to ensure effective leadership. We should endow each element of AA, the conference, the General Service Board and its service corporations, staffs, committees and executives with a traditional right of decision. Uh, 
And this is what this right of decision is, is the right of the conference delegates to make a decision at the end of the deliberative process. So they don't come to conference with a decision. They come to conference with views. There is discussion and then there is a vote and then the decision, the decision is made on the basis of the vote. So it, it's important with your own delegates to recognise they're totally allowed to vote against what you briefed them to, to do. Uh, but they must be accountable back to you for that. And you've got to accept what they say. You trust, you trust that they acted in good faith. Now, a region may still feel very strongly that the delegate made the wrong decision, in which case there are levers, levers that can be pulled. There is censure. You could say, naughty delegate, you shouldn't have done that. That's censure. Uh, you can reorganise the delegates between committees. Uh, you can uh, replace delegates. You can redirect them. You can tell go, go and do this, go and do that, write a letter, express this on, express this minority view to the board. There are lots of things you can do, but you've got to respect that person's integrity. And they haven't done anything wrong per se by voting against the wishes of, of the region. Um, let me just have a look at my notes. Right, so right of decision. Now, what one point about right of decision, the, the concept as it's fully set out, uh, means that this right rests with anyone to whom anything is delegated in the fellowship. So if you delegate to Susan to greet people at the door of your group, unless you specify how she's to greet them, however she greets them is up to her. <laughs> um, now, if the way in which she's greeting people turns out to be alarming or unsettling in any way, you can have a little word with her afterwards. But again, that's going forward. You redirect going forward. You, 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 um, you, you give people the right to do their job as they see fit. And this, as I say, works all the way, all the way through the fellowship. Um, in practice, what does right of decision mean? It means that if you're delegated something to do, there's a little circuit which takes place and the circuit has four elements. The first one is you get to act. If you're given something to do, you do it. It means you take initiative and active responsibility for project managing the project until it's completed. And I'm going to, there's more on initiative and active responsibility later on. Acting can mean to delegate it onwards to, but an action is an action. The concept also talks about consultation, and this takes um, various forms. You can consult those affected by a decision. So if you're going to make a decision about telephone offices, you want to consult the people that work in the telephone offices and say, hey, how would this affect you if we did X, Y and Z? You can ask people with specialist knowledge. It's another form of consultation. So uh, looking at the where there, there was a legal issue uh, recently in London about a, a treasurer of something or other running off with X thousand pounds. Uh, and, you know, you get some specialist knowledge, you get some legal information on, on the different avenues available and, and how it can be dealt with. Uh, you can ask for help. So there's never any reason to be overwhelmed when you're delegated something in AA. If it's too much for you, it's not for you to do. It was for you to ask for other people to give you help to do it. So now we have three things. You've got to act, you've got to consult, you've got to ask. And then you report back. So whoever has given you the job, you report back to the people that gave you the job. So you've got act, consult, ask, report. And so the right of decision really, in some ways, is the decision to work out which of those four you're going to do at a particular point in time. Um, now, this actual process of delegation, 
when you're delegating a task, and a good example of this is large AA groups will have a secretary. Uh, terminology varies. In the UK, the person that, that runs the meeting, that takes the meeting, is often called the secretary. In other groups, it's called the chair. And the secretary is the administrative assistant. Now, large and complex groups which provide, for instance, lots of information about service opportunities which keep proper minutes, which have proper group conscience meetings, which have proposals and discussions and background information and lists of this and lists of that and lists of members with telephone numbers, you need an administrative person. So the group delegates the uh, job of managing the records to the secretary. And when you're delegating something, uh, what you delegate is the outcomes that you want the person to achieve. And then the presumption is, however the individual wants to do that is entirely up to them. However, as part of the delegation process, you can also stipulate how that is to be done. So a good example is, is if you've got a speaker finder for a meeting, what is the outcome that you're delegating the speaker finder to achieve? Well, it's to uh, make sure that at seven o'clock on a Tuesday evening, there is a speaker there ready to roll. That's the outcome. Um, so you have to have some kind of outcome um, stipulated as part of delegation, but you can also stipulate how it's to be done um, or uh, specifying greater detail uh, what the outcome is. And a good example of where this goes wrong. Have you ever had a group where you, you know the way, I don't know why we do this, but we get people that haven't finished the steps or a six month sober or a nine month sober to, to be the speaker finder. So they haven't completed the steps. They're not necessarily in a position to judge who can carry the message the best when they haven't actually completed the program themselves. Uh, all that glitters is not gold in AA, as, as in anywhere else. But anyway, the most unfair thing that we do, however, is you get someone who's six months sober to uh, f find the speakers. You don't give them any clue as to how they're to go about this. You don't give them any parameters for what you know a speaker would look like. You know, as far as they're concerned, a any carbon biped will do. Sometimes they don't even get people who are AA members. I mean, it's the extraordinary things happen. Unless you've specified what you mean by speaker, carbon biped with a hole in their face, which sound comes out of. You can't really complain when that's exactly what they deliver. And they say, well, I got this person speaks. Noise comes out of their face. You asked me to get a speaker, I got a speaker. It's no good having what Barbara Taylor Bradford referred to as silent demands. She said two good things, Barbara Taylor Bradford. Maybe she said others, but they're not on record. The first one, never go to bed on an argument. Always resolve the argument with your other half before you go to sleep. Write that one down. Um, the second thing is never make silent demands. If you want your speaker at your meeting to exhibit uh, more uh, skill in the steps or to be five years sober or 10 years sober or to be largely cheerful or to be someone who is active in service. You've got to stipulate that to the meet speaker finder. You don't keep that silently and then complain about them afterwards. When something is delegated to you, however, uh, you've got you've got to, although you have the freedom, you have the right of decision to act within the scope, you're not allowed to change the scope without checking back. There was a situation a number of years ago where the uh, group um, was would produce a simple telephone list of all of the members, which when distributed would display on a single screen of a phone or a single screen of a computer, or when printed out, would print out on a single page. And a new secretary took over and it now, you know, when you 
fiddle around with Excel, sometimes it starts to print on 16 pages rather than one if you get the settings wrong. Anyway, um, the first one that came out was unusable because it printed out on 16 pages rather than one page. Uh, and also the secretary in question didn't like the fact that people were asking for the contact list. And it's part of the job description to produce and distribute the contact list. And they said, well, what do you want it for? Someone asked for it. And they said, what do you want it for? Well, it's none of your business. <laughs> it's, part of the, your, it's part of the job you're there to do. If you want to change the scope, if you believe that the group should not be distributing that, that's a group conscience question. You do not have the power unilaterally as the group secretary to change the scope of your job or to make decisions beyond the scope of your job. So there is a little bit of subtlety there. Sometimes there is there is legitimate disagreement. But basically, the long and short of it is you stipulate to the delegatee what the outcome is. You may um, stipulate how they go about doing that. So I've heard speaker finders be charged with the task of going to meetings in other parts of London so we get people that we wouldn't normally hear. So that's the how of doing it. Uh, to ask people, are you comfortable talking about the big book? Half the people who are asked say no. Um, you know, uh, there are lots of extra things you can you can squeeze into the delegation, but that must be agreed in advance. And then you've got measurable targets for the person to whom the work has been delegated. Um, let me have a look here. Um, now, this is the difficult thing. Once you've delegated someone a task to do, you've given them the outcomes to achieve. You may have stipulated some of the ways in which they're to achieve these outcomes. You leave them to it. Just like when you, you let someone cook in your kitchen, just go and play billiards about two miles away. Do not hover wincing. Uh, whereas that's often what we do. We hover wincing around people who are doing service. It makes them very uncomfortable. And then have you noticed uh, the groups where that happens? They say, why can't we find anyone to be the secretary? Why can't we find anyone to do the team? Well, it's because you've been hovering wincing with every new person that comes into the role. You won't let them get on with it. And then three weeks later, they resign and you wonder why. That's why. Um, so you kind of have to let people get it wrong and then have the uh, this is a useful practice at group level is if you have a regular business meeting and by business meeting, I don't mean group conscience, a regular business meeting once a month where all of the serving members report back on their roles and people can make helpful suggestions. If there is already a mechanism for people to a forum for people to report back and for other group members to make suggestions. It's not a big deal when someone makes a suggestion or makes an observation. And what it means is that the person can basically relax their tense during the meeting until they see if there's any feedback and then they're good for another month. Um, if you've worked in an office where your micromanage, you'll know the difference between someone who assesses your work once a week or once a quarter or once a year versus someone that is assessing it every seven minutes. If you have this mechanism, uh, it means that it's a low key thing to redirect how someone acts. Um, and just an FYI on, we mentioned the four things that you can do. Um, if you don't like how a delegatee is acting, you can censure, you can redirect, you can reorganize, you can replace. I wish all four began with R, but they don't. There's one C and three R's, but there we go. Uh, uh, the tip is to, by the way, everything I'm telling you, I've got from somewhere else. I have made nothing up myself. Um, to go down the line of redirection, rather than the line of censure, unless censure is really necessary. So it's only if someone has been frightfully naughty that you go down the censure route. Uh, generally, redirection, uh, which takes the form of, in future, 
it, it might be a great idea if you did X, Y and Z, what do you think is going to go down much better than, hey, you did this wrong, cut it out. The only exception where I've seen censure legitimately given is where people have basically been behaving very badly in an interpersonal way. So they've been rude or they've brought, they've damaged AA's reputation or that they're, they're not staying in their lane or something like that. That's where a little bit of censure doesn't, doesn't do any harm. Uh, but generally to go down the redirection route uh, of the, what someone refers to as the polite request, don't tell them to do something, uh, ask them, which means they can say no. Um, I mean, if they say no, they may have to resign, but that's another question. But to just politely request something rather than making a demand, and that's in the 12 and 12, the difference between a request and a demand is plain to anyone, unless you're in your first 20 years of sobriety, in which case you're probably going to have to have the difference explained. But anyway, um, Bill was over 20 years, so it was obvious to him the difference between a request and a demand. So um, your basic four levers of censure, redirection, reorganization and replacement are supplemented by uh, there's a there, there are a couple of further safeguards in concept seven. Uh, there should be the general view that when push comes to shove, the delegating authority is right and the delegatee is wrong. Uh, if the delegator, I mean, you get if you really think that you're painted into a corner, that you're the minority that is right. Write a tradition, write a concept five letter. Fine. Get it out onto the onto the page. But I've had situations on a national subcommittee where basically I think the whole board is wrong. I think the board member that is giving me the that is delegating something to me has made a bad decision. But you toe the line because of the traditional authority of who is delegating the work to you. You, you can always, as I say, you can always resign if it gets too much. You can always make a concept five complaint or file a minority report. And I've done that. And then you let it go. But otherwise, there's also the, um, the power of the purse. So ultimately, for any work to get done, uh, uh, there's, there are resources that have to be provided. If you withdraw the resources, the work can't get done. Now, concept three, we, we said right at the beginning that concept three is the solution to a problem. The problem being the fact that uh, some kind of decision making has to be made by anyone to whom work is delegated. And the, the two alternatives it talks about in the uh, essay on concept three by Bill W is either you could have this incredibly complex rule book or you could leave it to people to just work it out for themselves with no principles whatsoever. Uh, and it's pretty clear to it's pretty clear that complete anarchy doesn't work. You've got to have something to run by. If you've seen groups which don't operate in accordance with the traditions at all, if you don't have principles, you have to fall back on personalities. And that's not pretty. Uh, if you've seen groups with too many rules, there's the famous story of the group that had all of these rules until it devised a final rule. Rule 62, don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. So the approach in AA is to uh, be as uh, organized as little as possible, but as much as necessary. And I believe that concept three is an embodiment of that. It's just basically one principle with a few details. It's not a complex rule book, but it's not anarchy either. Um, what else? I'm gonna talk about concept three in my life. Um, If I just had the steps and I didn't have the traditions and the concepts, I'd probably be dead right now uh, in terms of applying, you know, practice these principles in all our affairs. Some of us are sicker than others. And I think I'm in the sicker category that needs all 36 principles. You know, these people that like they do the steps in the first year and then you know, seven years later, they're fine. 14 years later, they're fine. 25 years later, they're fine. 
and you say, I'm having a really hard time to say, are you? Why don't you just let let go and let God? That's what I do. And like nothing has happened in 25, but they genuinely fine. It's like something happens and they're permanently fixed. Um, it's not my story. Uh, I fall into error incredibly easily. Um, the story of my recovery, uh, it, I'm not sure it's trudging the path of happy destiny. Uh, it's certainly not tripping through the tulips. Um, um, I think it's more akin to leaping between tiny islands in the middle of a lava flow. That's what it's more been like. I've been fine, but only just. Again and again. I'm just talking about the last two weeks. This is not even the last 10 years. The last two weeks, jumping from island to island in a lava flow. I'm slightly singed. I've got everything done. I wouldn't give you tuppence for how I've got everything done, but I've got it done. Um, so I need these principles uh, very badly. Um, how does concept three apply in my life? Um, so the basic framework is that God's in charge of my life. I don't have a life. This is the point of concept three. Uh, of, of step three, of step three is a link between step three and tradition three. I don't have a life. I made a decision to turn my will and life over to a power greater than myself. That means I don't have it anymore. What happens is I get delegated back a bunch of things to do today. Final responsibility and ultimate authority reside with the higher power. Now, I don't know about you, I wake up having reassumed final responsibility and ultimate authority for everything. You can tell that you, you feel that because you're full of uh, shame, guilt and fear. Shame is there's something wrong with me. Guilt is it's my fault that there is something wrong with me. Fear, they are going to get me. If you don't know who they are, you're not ready for the program. But they, whoever they are, they're going to get you. Sometimes it's projected outwards. You look at the climate, you look at the political situation, and you feel like personally ashamed and responsible and then frightened. So it's where the ego extends and pastes itself on whatever it sees. It's projection, literally a throwing outward. What concept three says to me is pish. You, you have no final responsibility. You have no ultimate authority except as a tiny part of that, you know, universal consciousness. What you have is immediate and actual responsibility and authority to do what? To have your breakfast, to open the first email of the day to write words on the screen, to press send, boom, you've now done your first task of the day. What's the next task of the day? That's all you have to do. Um, I'm given right of decision by the higher power over how I do that, which means I get to uh, use my intelligence. I've quoted the two passages about uh, thinking in the big book. Um, which means I get to think for myself. Uh, Dennis F. talks about not needing to worry because God has final responsibility and ultimate authority. If I'm worrying, I'm not trusting God and I'm playing God by assuming the task of worrying about the final outcomes on behalf of the higher power. Um, Dr. Paul O was brilliant on this. He says, I don't have problems. Now, when he said this, that got my attention. He said he has situations, but he turns those over to the higher power. And the higher power has got a pretty good 
track record of handling situations. There is no such thing as a personal problem. There are situations where I get to go to the higher power and say, what do you want me to do next? That's it. There is no such thing as a problem. That when sponsees call, I've, they've largely stopped calling me, um, but, but on those few occasions, and who can blame them? I wouldn't call me. Um, when they call, you know, how do you triage the sponsee? Uh, there ought to be a there ought to be a pamphlet on triaging sponsees, but there isn't. You know, maybe you can have a question for conference. Um, but outside the scope of ordinary step work, you know, have you done the list? No, go and do it, then call me. Outside the scope of that, when someone phones with a problem, the first uh, question in the triage questionnaire is are you agitated or doubtful page 87 uh, there is no problem that doesn't basically fall into the categories of agitated or doubtful you're upset and you don't know how not to be upset agitated or you don't know what to do doubtful agitated or doubtful which one is it susan pick one. Is it both? Great. But we now know there are two. Okay. If I'm agitated, um, the answer is to accept. Um, now, you can go to Tibet for two years. You can do a course in miracles. You can do the rosary three times a day. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of that, you'll have to accept it, whatever it is. You can either accept it now or you can accept it later after bashing your head bloody against the wall with it. Which is it going to be? There we go. My friend James is very good on this. You, you'll trot out some terrible tale of woe and he'll say, well, there it is. Or sometimes to mix things up, he'll say, well, there we have it. That's acceptance from an upper-class Brit. That's what acceptance sounds like from an upper-class Brit. Well, there we have it. What are we going to do next? Huh. Um, doubtful. You ask. Right of decision. You take action, you consult, you ask, you report back. Um, the point at what... A further point about the um, final responsibility and ultimate authority being with God means that God takes the credit for everything. So when we're clapping people's sobriety in meetings, we're clapping the higher power, not the individual. Um, I've been taught to accept gratitude with grace, but not to touch it internally. So to quietly pass it on wearing, you know, um, nitrile gloves to the higher power. Never take gratitude in AA personally. I, one of the biggest reasons why I've seen people who are sober a long time get upset is they help. I've seen this in myself. I've seen other people do it. You help someone and they're so grateful to you. You think you've made a friend and you haven't. The Komodo dragon does not love you. The Komodo dragon wants heat and flies and you supply heat and flies and so they run after you but it's not love it's something else and then you're disappointed when it when you discover actually they've moved on it wasn't it was never personal they were grateful for what you were providing to them from the higher power now friendship of course does happen in aa but not to mix up gratitude for the benefits of the program with personal affection a huge amount of upset and misunderstanding arises out of this. And the answer is in concept three, recognizing I'm only ever delegated something. The final responsibility and authority resides with God. Um, in any situation, and I, I'm facing an awful lot of things in my life at the moment. I mean, it's not dramatic. You don't need to, to weep for me. Um, but there is a lot going on. I'm the, the attorney for my very elderly mother and uh She's at an age where lots of things are happening, lots of things are moving. Um, I won't go into the details of other things. And I could easily get overwhelmed by all of the projects which are on my plate. And 
the answer is in concept three. I'm faced with a situation. I, I act. And when do I act? Now. My aim is to get the task into someone else's, into someone else, get the ball into someone else's court. Put the task in someone else's in-tray. You bat the ball to the other side of the court. If I don't know how to act, um, I consult, I ask. If I really can't do anything, I report back to whoever I need to report back to. But it's out of my hands. Um, let me see what else I've got. Um, the real decision, as I said earlier in concept three, is to decide whether to act, consult, ask or report. And again, Dennis F is great on this. He says the only thing you ever really need to do is is pray for the right decision to make. And then the action flows automatically from that. And the big book is very clear on this. So page 86, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest or self-seeking motives. It's 86. Page 69. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. Page 86. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. Page eight, that's page 86. That means that the real action is prayer. I don't want to take action disconnected from prayer. If I pray first, the action becomes automatic. Um, and so the practice of concept three in my life really requires the practice of steps three and 11. I turn whatever the the project is over to God and then ask God for knowledge of his will for me in that project and the power to carry that out. So all of the potential weight I could be carrying for these projects in my life outside the scope of work. They're completely weightless. All The only burden I have is the duty of performing the next task. If I don't currently have a duty to perform, let's say because I'm talking to you, then the duty is not mine. The duty becomes mine only at the moment I am charged with taking an action. Um, now with defects and addictions, um, addictions other than, you know, you're sober in AA, but maybe you're doing, as Bob Bazan says, uh, you're taking some actions which you wouldn't want filmed and sent to the general service office or broadcast, you know, or, or on Facebook Live or something. Um, and defects, which are really mini addictions of a sort, but that's a whole other discussion. When there's only one option, I don't have right of decision because a decision requires there to be more than one option. So when there's only one option, I'm powerless, not guilty. And this is the whole basis of the program. This is why I'm in AA, is that I only had one option, which was to have a drink. Once I drank, I only had one option, which was to drink all of the alcohols. That was the only option available powerless. If you've only got one option, you're powerless. Once I'm being given a program, it gives me a different voice to listen to. There are two voices. I know it sounds like there are more, but it's basically there are each voice has, you know, wears different hats. It does impressions. You know, the ego is the Robin Williams of the of the mind. It, it can play whoever it wants. But effectively, there are only two voices, the ego and God. When you only have the ego's voice, you're powerless. As soon as you have God's voice available, you have you now have two options and therefore you have a right of decision. And uh, and you cannot help but decide between those two. You can't go with one and then pretend that you're not making a decision. You're making a decision. Um, I once phoned up someone saying, I'm full of fear. And they said, no, 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 no. You've been given a program. You've deliberately um, been toying with fearful thoughts, which automatically produce fearful feelings. So you've decided not to turn to God and instead to dwell on your fearful thoughts. And now you're complaining that you feel fear. Whose fault is that? You've got right a decision. Um, 
So the decision is always between falling back into ego and addiction and defects or seeking knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. So right, this right of decision gives me the act. It, it indicates to me that power is available. So when facing any kind of problem, um, I move from being power, powerless to being not powerful, but empowered. Powerful suggests that the power originates in me. Empowered suggests that the power flows through me. Huge difference. So in practicing these principles in all our affairs, you know, step one, recognize I have a problem. Step two, recognize there is a solution, which means that there are two voices to listen to, not one, which means I have right of decision. That decision is the decision in step three. And then how do I act? I analyze the problem in step four. Where am I wrong in belief, thinking and behavior? Uh, the next action is in steps, step five. Uh, I disclose that to someone else. For some reason, uh, the disclosure of problems seems to um, poison the growth medium of defects. As soon as you've told someone else about it, it cannot grow in the same way. I don't know why, but that appears to be the case. Uh, it can be persistent in other ways, but it, it's just it, it's categorically different once you've told the right people. Step six, be willing to surrender the problem to God. Step seven, actually surrender the problem to God. Uh, steps eight through 12, take the requisite action to uh, have God solve the problem. So there are really three decisions in, in the process. The first one is to engage in the decision, engage in the process of solving the problem. And that's like step zero is recognizing you have a problem and you want to apply the program to it. Sometimes people call up and they start talking about a problem, but it becomes apparent that they haven't yet made the decision to turn the problem over to the program. And I've done this. Um, I want to look like I'm engaging in the program so I can feel less guilty about the fact I'm acting out on the problem. Because look, I'm trying. So it's important to get step zero in place. Am I, have I made a decision that I'm done and I want a solution. And then the second decision is in step three is to examine what the problem is. And then the next decision is in step seven, which is to uh, live in the solution. Uh, another point is the importance of respecting others' right of decision. Um, so I think this is connected to tr tradition for letting others plow their own furrow, letting others get things wrong. If they want to drink, that's your business. If they want to stay sober, it's ours. If you don't want to work the program, that's your business. If you do want to work the program, that becomes ours. But to respect other other people's rights of decision. Um, and really, I, I said there are any questions. Are there any questions, Gabrielle? No, there are no questions. That's all I've got. So I'm going to stop there. Thanks for listening, everyone.